KYW Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. When it comes to something as routine as wearing your favorite team's hat or shirt, the fans in Philadelphia wear it all the time. They wear it with pride. You just know that it matters to them. And there's very few places in the country that we travel to um, that can be on par with that, I I think. And our guest this week, Philly's play-by-play man on the radio, Scott Fransky, one of the best in the business. Scott, thanks so much for coming in. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matt. As we are talking today, it's the first week of spring training. We were talking you'll be going down in a few days. Uh, What's this time of year like for you? Are you getting anxious to kind of get back into the grind? Yeah, it's it's pretty busy trying to make sure uh, at home the family's all uh, set up with the proper number of babysitters and what not for when I'm gone, but uh, and then still trying to focus on work a little bit, and uh, you know you get kind of out of the habit of, of doing a day to day grind uh, during the winter, and um, so you kind of get your juices flowing again. And uh, I always look forward to the first few games and, and getting back down there and getting to be with the guys and, and things like that. So, so where does play by play broadcasting? Was this the goal from day one? Was this something that you were introduced to and thought it was going to be fun? What's the what's the life path? How did it start? Well, uh, when I, I I kind of got to it a roundabout way, to be honest with you, Matt. Um, I started uh, as just a basic uh, radio, TV, film major in college, and wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Um, wrote a story a basketball story for the student newspaper this was at smu uh, at smu yeah and i you know just did a profile of the basketball coach i'd always loved sports and loved baseball um was an avid listener to baseball on the radio as a kid growing up and um I kind of got into it and said you know this is fun and i like sports and maybe there's something here for me and I really thought for a while it was going to be as a writer. I, I kind of um, focused on that heavily in college, uh, more the print side of everything. And um, But did games, you know, events on the student radio station on the side, football, basketball. And uh, we didn't have a baseball team, so there was no opportunities there. Um, and that sort of one thing led to another. I got into sports talk for a little while. Mm-hmm. And um, – that led me to a talk show job with the Texas Rangers, and uh, that's kind of when the time in my life where I sort of got the real itch to do events and to do play-by-play. Um, and I wanted to give baseball a try. Uh, I had done a lot of basketball, done a lot of football, and I loved doing them both, but I really wanted to try baseball. And so the announcers there in Texas recommended to me, they said, hey, look, if you really want to try it, you're going to need to go to the minor leagues and, and try to do it on a day-in and day-out basis. You might find you, you won't like it as much because right. it's six and seven days a week and there's no break. And, and um, so I, I went and you know, got a minor league job and, and sort of rode the buses for a few years and, and worked my way up from there. Did you find the play-by-play – for the mo- did it come easy to you? Did it just kind of seem natural? I don't know if it came easy. Uh, I've certainly over the years given it a lot of thought. I probably did uh, gave it 
too much thought at times, um, just sort of the, the mechanics of it, the ins and outs. But uh, uh, I kind of uh, – I feel like I had some pretty good teachers in terms of their critiques and, and the things that they suggested I try and, and suggested that I do differently or, um, or continue doing the same, that sort of thing. And um, so I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know that it came easy when you say you do uh, – it came easy for me in the fact that I was super fortunate. I only did three years in the minor leagues mm-hmm. and got lucky. I knew some people and, and that led me back to Texas to get the a job with the Rangers uh, doing a few games and doing some innings. And um, so in that regard, uh, you know, I had a lot of – people really kind of look out for me and that was uh i was very fortunate in that respect because there's a lot of really good minor league announcers Mm -hmm. that you know just can't for whatever reason find that space that that it clicks for them and and a market where um their um, talents are recognized you know so um they stay in the minor leagues and um you know i i wasn't sure how long i would do that but um, you know, like I said, I was I was really lucky to to find my way out of there fairly quickly. So the minor league, I think it was the Kane County Cougars. That's it. You did, yeah, Kane County Cougars. So you talk they you know when they tell you go check it out in the minors, you might not like it. Yeah, the grind and the thing I have talked to people, friends of mine who have done the minor leagues is those days when you wake up in a motel. And specifically, a couple of guys like in the Eastern League would be like, and I'd forget if we're in Altoona in yeah. Erie. Did you experience that? And did you have moments like, man, I don't know if I can do another seven-hour bus ride? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, um, I was in the Midwest League, which is where we were. Um, Kane County is near Chicago. It's kind of suburban Chicago. It's a good ways out. I mean, it's a it's a pretty long commuter train ride into the city from there. But it was close enough that uh, my wife, we were newly married. We were engaged my first year in the minors, and then we got married. Um, she would take the train into the city, and I would drive you know, out to the suburbs to do the baseball stuff. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's certainly long days, uh, uh, long weeks, long months. Um, you're on the road. You're away from home. Um, you miss being at home. You miss a little bit of downtime. Uh, but I don't know. It's 7 o'clock every night. There's just a little energy there and some juices flowing that um, keep you going. And um, it was – I mean I'm not going to lie. It was, it was tough every winter that sort of – you know, the minor league season would end about Labor Day. If you were in the playoffs, it might go another week or two. But usually it was over in September. And then you had – October, November, December, January, February, you're waiting on the other jobs to open mm-hmm. and you're waiting on all the dominoes to fall. Well, uh, this major league job came open. I'm not qualified for that yet, but uh, maybe this AAA guy will get that job and maybe the AA guy will move up to AAA and you can move up to AA and that sort of thing. And we did a lot of, you know, we did a lot of soul searching. I had other offers at times to, to move up to a AA club or a AAA club, but I felt like being in Chicago, being near a big city, uh, was also helpful for me because I got work in the off season doing a little freelance stuff here and there. There was a lot of opportunities to do other things, and um, most notably make a little extra money because right. we made nothing in the miners. I mean, the the job just pays nothing, and um, so you had to really love it. 
you had to really, really love it to stay with it. And like I said, I was pretty lucky uh, that it was three years and, and I was out of there. When you were doing Kane County, were you just broadcasting or were you selling? Were you doing game notes? Yeah. Were you doing PR? Yeah. I mean, because usually it's a lot of hats. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I did a little of everything. Now, my boss there was was pretty kind. He knew that I wanted to do radio. I wanted to be a play-by-play broadcaster. And he knew that's why I came and why I was there. I wasn't there to to sell. Um, So he didn't hang a big budget number on me every winter and say, all right, you're going to have to sell X amount of dollars Mm -hmm. in advertising uh, in order to sort of, you know – to really float our franchise because it wasn't like that. They, they, they were. A, it was a good team. Again, it was a suburban market. They, they got a lot of of families in Chicago that would want to come to the games that didn't want to drive all the way into the city to see the Cubs or the White Sox. Um, you know, it's so expensive, and mm-hmm. they, they could have a family night out at at a minor league park for a lot less. So, um, yeah, we had to do everything. I mean, whether it was pull tarp. Um, clean up the stadium after games. I, I remember a lot of, lot of nights on Saturday nights that stadium's just a wreck and you got to turn it around and get it ready for the next day. And everybody is all hands on deck to sweep every aisle and sweep all the trash and clean up all the peanuts and everything else to have the stadium ready for the next day. So I would try to make my post-game shows go a little bit longer <laughs> <laughs> on those days when uh, – when I knew there was a big crowd and there was going to be a lot of trash, so most of it was cleaned up by the time I got off the air. Were, were you doing games by yourself, or did you have a partner? Gen- yeah, generally. It was uh, almost all the games were by myself. We did a, we hosted the All-Star Game one year, uh, the league All-Star Game, and uh, we televised the All-Star Game. And I got a chance to do the game on TV with Jimmy Pearsall. Nice. Um, and that was a, that was a, a trip. Um, he, was, he was a character, and uh, his payment for doing the game – uh, was two uh, barbecue pork chop sandwiches. <laughs> we had this great barbecue pork chop sandwich, and uh, it was kind of well known around the league uh, as far as concession items go. And so that was his. He had been a coach in that league. He was like a roving instructor for the Cubs at the time, and so he knew our park well and had been to it before. And um, he said, "That's what I. I'll come do the game with with you, uh, but I want two of those sandwiches." <laughs> <laughs> so overall, doing games by yourself, I don't think people appreciate how difficult that can be. Specifically, baseball, yeah. limited action. How did you learn to get comfortable doing games and not constantly? talking because number one it's impossible and number two you just sometimes you just got to let it breathe but i remember as a young broadcaster that was a difficult lesson to to learn to to kind of let it unfold in front of you i think one of the biggest uh keys for a young broadcaster is to make sure you're listening a lot to yourself because generally i find or i found that as i was doing the game as i was announcing the game and I would talk, and I would leave some space, and I would just not talk. What I would generally find is that so often when I was young, I would be sort of in my head mentally panicking for what to say next, what to talk about next, what to focus on next. And then I would think to myself, oh, my gosh, I didn't say anything. Like, I, like there was all this space, and it, was, it probably sounded terrible. And then you go back and listen to it, 
and the space you leave is never as much as you think mm-hmm. it is. Um, the reality is you're probably still maybe even talking too much, if if anything else. So uh, I, I don't know. They, I, I felt like I knew what I wanted it to sound like, and a lot of that had to do with the guys that I grew up listening to and how they delivered a baseball game on the radio, and there was a lot of silence. Um, and I felt like I, I don't know. It just it took listening to yourself a lot, whether it was just getting used to the sound of your own voice, whether it was getting used to the silence, uh, or or whether it was again you're doing every one of these innings every day by yourself. So you're going to need a lot of different ways to describe a routine ground mm-hmm. ball to short because there are a lot of routine ground balls to short. So you. That was those were the kinds of things you worked on, finding different ways to describe those things and to try to make it fresh and sound different. Do you have any from the those minor league days, a the wackiest travel story or the wackiest minor league game you you covered? Does anything kind of pop up that was kind of a quintessential minor league moment? Well, um <laughs> I uh I, I can tell you this, uh I don't know that there's one thing. I mean, we had uh, – I remember one time we were on a, a long road trip. It was right before the All-Star break, and we had like a four-game series in uh, western Michigan, which is in Holland, Michigan. And um, we got swept in the four-game series. We uh, got shut out in three of the four games, and we got no hit in two of the games. Wow. We got outscored something like 44 to 4 or something. And I remember we had an all-night bus ride. We, our, our team was in the middle of the league. So we didn't generally have some of the horrible bus mm-hmm. rides that some other leagues do. Um, but we had to go all the way from Holland, Michigan into Cedar Rapids. I think Cedar Rapids, somewhere in Iowa the next day. So it was an all-night bus ride. And I remember we stopped at a, uh, t- like a 24-hour Walmart and um, – they just sort of were like, all right, kids, you know, these are all anywhere from 19-year-old Latin American kids to maybe 22-year-old first real summer out of college kind of kids. And um, and it's just like, all right, we got 15 minutes, unload the bus, go buy something to eat in Walmart and get back on the bus in 15 minutes. And uh, I remember I was uh, – that year we had uh, Josh Beckett. Okay. He would go on to obviously have a a, a fine career, uh, and I remember walking through the Walmart in the middle of the night, and so, I don't even know where we were, probably somewhere in Indiana or something like that. But uh, uh, and walking around with Josh Beckett in the middle of the night, looking for something to eat at a Walmart. But that's kind of the way the the minor leagues yep. were. Um, you know, um, that's just kind of how it was. You mentioned freelance work in the off-seasons. Did I read you covered the 2000 Olympics in Sydney? Yeah. Uh, there was a, a outfit uh, I don't think exists anymore called One-on-One Sports. It was a 24-hour sports network, and they were based in Chicago. And Someone I had known from my days uh, in my first job in Dallas uh, was working there, and he called me up. And One year they had, a, uh, th- they had an opportunity. They needed somebody to go cover – the National League Championship Series, I think it was, um, in Atlanta. And uh, 
it was basically just a tape runner kind of job. I mm-hmm. mean, I just went there and filed a couple of reports and got sound. And then the next year, uh, they called me up in the late July and they said, hey, look, uh, I know last year we kind of came out of left field and with this assignment. Um, I've got one like way out of left field. I'm like, well, what is it? He goes, could you go to Sydney for three weeks uh, in September and um, and cover the Olympics for us? And um, uh, it was my it was going to be our my wife and I our first winter with like the winter before we had been getting ready for the wedding and right. all this stuff. And um, this was like there was just no. Uh, somebody got sick or somebody's father was sick, the guy who was going to cover, and he didn't want to leave the country. And so they said, hey, can you do it? And I said, absolutely, I'll, I'll go. And, it, you know, it was – I covered a few events. A lot of it was, believe it or not, sitting in an apartment and reading scores and reading right. results of, of matches and mm-hmm. games and uh, different events, uh, things like that. But I got to, you know, kind of go out and – experience Sydney and experience the Olympic uh, scene, if you will. Um, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a really cool experience. And um, and they the, – the people with one-on-one actually offered me a job as a talk show host uh, I think later that same winter, which I ended up turning down, which I can't believe I did because it was way more money than mm-hmm. minor league baseball. But it was my wife who, who said, no, I think you – I just think you'll regret it. I think by the 1st of May, you'll be sitting in that studio doing a talk show and wondering what's happening at the ballpark. And she's probably right, and um, I'm glad we stayed with it. So after the minor league, you get back in with the Rangers, yeah. right? And you were doing, what, pre and post and a couple innings? Yeah, I was pre and post, and uh, uh, one of our, our, TV, or, uh, our TV announcer – was Josh Lewin at the time. Okay. Uh, and he had part of the Fox Saturday baseball package. So there were certain weekends where he would leave the Rangers and go do Fox. So then the number two radio announcer would slide over right. and do TV, and I would slide in from pre- and post-game and do. And I think the first year I did about 25 games, and the, the next year I thought it was going to be the same. And uh, they came to me in spring training and said, well, the situation's kind of changed, and uh, long and short of it is – the number two radio guy isn't going to be doing the number – going to be filling in on TV. So we don't have that mm-hmm. spot for you. So the next year, I didn't do any games. Um, the year after that, I think I did one. Like I filled in when people were sick. And um, and uh, the last year, I think I did six. Uh, but in the meantime, they had they had made a change in their booth and, and uh, they wanted an ex-player in their booth. And obviously, I wasn't that. And um, – I just got kind of discouraged. I, I was worried. I was, you know, it's not going to happen here. I was mm-hmm. going to maybe go back to the minor leagues and do play-by-play again because I was. Um, turns out my wife was right. I was. <laughs> I was. I, I just didn't want to do the talk show. I mean, right. I, I did it as a means to an end uh, to to get to do those innings for the game. But that's what I really wanted to do were innings uh, for a baseball team, and um, it didn't matter where. I just wanted that opportunity. Uh, it would have been cool if it had been where I grew up and the team I grew up watching, but um, it wasn't to be. And uh, so I ended up here in Philadelphia. How do you find out about how does the Phillies opening opportunity come to pass? Well, uh, Tom McCarthy had been doing radio and doing pre and post game uh, and left to go to the Mets. 
and you know just sort of through the grapevine heard about the opening and um, called the Phillies, talked to them. They said, "Yeah, we're not sure it's going to include a play-by-play assignment. It may just be a talk show assignment." I said, "Okay, well, no offense, but I have that." Um, I had an offer on the table to go back to one AAA team. I had an uh, an interview scheduled with another one um, that I was actually flying to uh, when the Phillies finally said, "You know what? We uh, we're still not sure what's going to happen, but we at least want you to come to Philly and we want to meet you and talk to you." So I flew to Philly, and uh, and literally in the interview, they still didn't know whether the job would include play by play, and I said again. All due respect, um, I, I can't ask my wife to move again. I can't, you mm-hmm. know, I can't go through that again if it's not for innings every day. Right. And uh, and they said, "Yep, we totally understand. We're going to talk about it. We'll get back to you." And a few days later, they called and said, "Yeah, we want to offer you the job. You'll do two innings a night. You'll do pre and post game, and you'll do two innings every night." Um, and you'll work with this crazy old dude. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we hope you enjoy it. <laughs> So you come in and, you know, Harry Callis is part of the broadcast sure. TV, but were you aware of Harry's legendary status in Philadelphia or was he, before you come here, a name you obviously have heard of in broadcasting, but you weren't kind of aware what he meant to Philadelphia? Yeah, I don't, I did not have a great uh, grasp on just how deep the affection was for him. That was something that had to be seen to be understood. Um, you know, you could read a blurb in a paper that says, well, he's a beloved broadcaster. All right. Well, it, everybody writes that stuff, right? Uh, it took being here and seeing it to know. I mean, for me, my real uh, knowledge of Harry was through NFL films. Right. Um, you know, growing up in Texas, football is king. And uh, the Alcola fantastic finishes and, and watching those things every week. They were and, great, weren't right? they? Right, <laughs> yeah. And so those types of things, the NFL films productions, um, the pregame stuff they would – you know, the weekly um, inside the NFL stuff that they would do every week. And so that's how I, I more knew Harry. And I certainly knew his voice uh, well from, from that a- aspect, uh, but not as much with baseball until I got here. Do you remember your first – when you first met Harry? Uh, I don't remember when I first met him, but I do remember when I first was on the air with him. And it was my very first inning on the air in spring training. We were in Kissimmee. And uh, I was off the air for the first three innings. And then I would jump on in the fourth, do color for Harry, and then do a couple of innings of play-by-play. I'm not sure exactly Mm -hmm. how it was was spaced out, but he was doing play-by-play when I went on the air with him. And um, Ryan Howard hit a home run down the left field line uh, in Kissimmee. And uh, Harry did the, you know, that, that ball's out of here, and he did the whole thing. And I mean, the hairs on the back of my neck just stood up. And uh, I just kind of had to pinch myself there. I'm like, gosh, I'm sitting here with Harry Callis, you know. Uh, what happened? How did I get here? Because, you know, I mean, a few weeks before, I thought I might be going back to the minor leagues. Right. I wasn't sure. <laughs> Um, it all happened so quickly. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember that first game, and um, I'll remember it always. Time for a break here on One on One. We will have more with Phillies play-by-play voice Scott Fransky right after this. 
It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. And we are back here on One on One. Our guest this week, Phillies play-by-play voice, Scott Fransky. What was your first interaction with Larry Anderson? Well, uh, so during the interview process, uh, what I was told about Larry was, hey, we have this guy. Uh, We think he's the funniest guy in the room. And we want more of that to come out on the air. And the only thing I really knew about Larry Anderson – I knew about the Bagwell trade, obviously. And I knew from an old baseball card that he could do this trick where he put sunflower seeds all over his face, right? And so I knew about those those couple of things. Um, but Larry and I, you know, I mean, I don't know. Uh, Larry was so awesome and welcoming, and um, he embraced me so quickly. I have no idea why, but, uh, but he did, and um, – just right away, I kind of fell in love with the guy, you know. I mean, he was fun-loving, fun to be around, great partner to work with, um, knew a tremendous amount of, about the game that he could teach me. And, you know, really all the broadcasters, um, there, there, were, there was something that I got from every one of them right, almost right away. And, um, you know, whether it was Harry and his advice to me or whether it was to Tom later was always – you know, just be yourself. Don't worry about being me. Don't worry about being anybody. Just be yourself on the air, and it'll everything will take care of itself. Um, and you know, we Chris Wheeler Wheels. I I you know, uh, I just love Wheels, and Wheels is still you know kind of a, a go to source for me for information historically. You know, I'll we'll be doing some game, and something will come up relating to a game from the early 80s or the late 70s or something like that. And I can look at a box score, sure. But if I talk to Wheels, he's got some context for it. He's kind of my unofficial historian and and really helped me uh, bolster my knowledge of of Philly's history uh, quickly uh, after getting here. So, um, But Larry was, you know, right away, we just kind of hit it off as friends. It was great. And that kind of the chemistry with you guys has always been, you know, and do you feel like chemistry with a broadcast partner? It's either something you have or you don't. Do you think it is something that can be developed or is it just something you just kind of have to click with the person? Well, I do think you need to click with the person. But I I also think I mean, the chemistry is what it is. Um, but in terms of being able to put that into a product on the air that works, um, that's something that develops, and I think that's something that we grew into over time. I don't, you know, I think if I look back, and even if I listen back to some of the early stuff that we did together, uh, you know, that first year, my focus was I. It had been a number of years since I'd done that much play-by-play, mm-hmm. and. I probably – I think I went through a phase where I was like, well, who am I? I got to remember who I am as a play-by-play announcer. Um, but I think my f- first goal was always that 
thing the Phillies had told me when they hired me was we want to bring out Larry. So that was my focus. That was my biggest focus. And it actually probably helped me um, not worry too much about the other stuff, the mechanics, the play-by-play and you know, having a great call of this, that, or the other. I just sort of was more focused on him and more focused on uh, trying to bring that out. And that probably helped our chemistry uh, from the get-go uh, to be able to – it was kind of like we were working at it um, first and foremost, um, having a product that was uh, – that we shared in mm-hmm. because I think that's um, – you know, you hear that a lot. Like, um, and and you've you've done this, Matt. You, you're with a partner, and uh, the the old oh, you can't talk over his call. And I've always tried to re- to remind Larry that I'm like, hey, or, or whether now it's Kevin Franzen or whoever. I said, hey, we do this together. Like, this is our call. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a responsibility, and you have a responsibility, but this is our call together. And so. There's ways that we can all make it the best. Now, again, we don't want we don't want to necessarily talk over each other all the time, but don't be afraid to be yourself. Like you don't need to clear out for me so I can have this uh, big call at, the, at, at a certain moment. I mean, I think I think when we look back and when we listen back or whether we watch back great calls, the analyst is just as much a part of it as the play-by-play guy. Um, I think back to last year and the the Bryce Harper uh, home run against the Cubs. Right. The, the, and I, I'm telling you, everybody's call was great. You know, they were all good. But I think the thing that stands out most for everyone who watched that, listened to it, whatever, was John Krupp. Yep. Right? Yep. And he, if he doesn't say that, right? Right. It's a different call. Yeah. And not taking anything away from Tom, his call was tremendous. But as they pair it together, what they both do in the moment, that's what makes it magical. Mm-hmm. It's because they're both a part of it. And I've always tried to, to sort of emphasize that with Larry. Look, do your thing. Be you. It's okay. You're, you will not offend me. You will not. So, Do you remember the first time he left you speechless or desperately trying not to laugh or he just – came out with something that you were not expecting and you you, you know you kind of had to roll with it well yeah we we would get ourselves into uh, especially early we would get ourselves into a lot of like laughing fits we're literally uh you know we're side by side in a booth somewhere and uh we can't look at each other we literally cannot look at each other and we both have our fist on the cough button for long stretches because we're just laughing and he'll try to get it together and I'll try to get it together and out of the corner of my eye, I can see him physically shaking because he's still laughing and he's trying to look away. He's looking in the, you know, at there's sometimes, you know, there's windows on the right. side or whatever. Uh, so you can look into the next booth. Well, windows create reflections. <laughs> I look off to the side into my window, right, to, to not look at him and I can see his reflection behind me. He's still laughing. So uh, there have been a lot of moments. There was one in particular in uh, uh, when we did it. We did an exhibition game in Lehigh Valley, and we've talked about this a number of times. But Larry, um, uh, Larry was a. It was on a Sunday morning. It was right after we got back from spring training. They were opening Coca Cola Park right. at, at, at Lehigh, 
And there, there was an exhibition game. The Phillies were going to play the Iron Pigs. And so we drive up there on a Sunday morning, and uh, it's literally the bottom of the first inning. And uh, Shane Victorino was at the plate, and Larry went to turn his microphone down, and he belched. <laughs> this long, big belch. Um, and I turn and look at him, and my eyes just get as big as pie plates. And Larry looks at me, and his eyes go big because he realizes in that moment that he's not turned his microphone down. He turned his headphones down. <laughs> so he couldn't hear the belch, but everyone else could. And uh, I started to giggle, and he said, sorry about that, folks, because <laughs> he realized what he did. And, I mean, it was – we were so fortunate that Victorino struck out to end the inning on the next pitch because we were able to throw it to break. Otherwise, I'm not sure we would have ever recovered from that. So you come in in 2006. Correct. So you're, you kind of get in on the on-ramp of when this group is starting to come together. Yeah. Uh, when do you do you have any moments games you remember those first couple years before they won the the division in two thousand seven when you started to think something special's yeah. starting to I'm getting to feel like we're we're about to go for a very pretty nice ride yeah uh, you know the last two months of '06 was a lot of fun um, they had traded Abreu and some others and that's when the club kind of became uh, when Rollins Utley and Howard took ownership of the whole thing. And um, and uh, they were exciting to watch, and and uh, you know they made a little deal there uh, to try to add. You know they added Moyer, and they like they were clearly going for mm-hmm. a little wild card chase kind of thing. Um, but then in '07, you know again the season didn't start great. They had their struggles. They were they had their ups and downs, um, uh, and that was the you know team to beat thing. Um, the uh, I I don't know that I'll ever forget the four game series they had with the Mets right. in late August, uh, where they swept the Mets uh, at Citizens Bank Park, and uh, I think not only from a team standpoint, uh, seeing what they were capable of as a group, but seeing what the fan base was capable of, um, I think that was one of the first times that it it just really exploded, like the where the building itself was just shaking. And, and then, of course, it just grew and grew and grew. But that, that series against the Mets, uh, I remember, it just um, sort of put in your mind that, um, yeah, this is a good team and, and there are good things that are going to happen here. So they 2007, they win the division, go to the playoffs for the first time in a long time. But 2008, obviously, they win the World Series. Was there a moment in 2008, regular season or postseason, when you thought, Oh my goodness, they're they're going to do it because a lot of times in baseball, I think you've got to be very good to get to the playoffs. But the best team doesn't always win. A team starts to get a feel or get a look to them, and you don't know it until it's over. And you're like, oh, it's pretty obvious now. Yeah. And I think because I think 2008 was actually like almost maybe the weakest of those Phillies teams when you go nine, ten, eleven. Yeah, but. They got hot and they just started to get a feel, and it became they almost willed it that it was it was their turn. Was there a moment when you thought they're going to win this? They got a chance to win this whole thing. Yeah, um, there were a couple of moments. Uh, this Matt Stairs home run in Los Angeles. Um, that was that game in particular was such a swing. Um, 
swing of emotions throughout the game, and uh, and then of course it swung the series in my mind. Uh, that was you know, and then um, uh, honestly, when when Boston lost to Tampa in the ALCS, um, because I thought Boston was was a, a better team and maybe a tougher matchup, um, and I thought you know what, I I like our chances a lot. Uh, to win it all and um, you know of course we still weren't there I remember seeing the end of that and um, when we were at the hotel in Los Angeles and um, and I thought to myself wow this could really this like it feels like it's coming together that was when it sort of that was a two-day span where you felt like man this is like coming together I think this is going to happen um, so um, yeah but the stairs home run was was you know, to have Victorino hit the one to tie it, and then Stairs hit the one to take the lead. Uh, that that was pretty, pretty big moment in terms of the momentum. So they win the World Series. As someone who's not from here, did you were you here long enough to appreciate the championship drought and what any team, but yeah. specifically the Phillies, getting to have a parade and all that? Were you stunned? at the reaction when they won the World Series just because uh, you were relatively new to the city. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any way anybody could ride on one of the, those floats and not come away stunned, um, even if you'd done it before, quite frankly, um, which there were a few people who had done it way back in, in 1980. And, uh, uh, but yeah, the, the, um, the outpouring of, of emotion and sort of the sense of relief from everybody – um, the sense of release from everybody because I think the tension had been ratcheted up so high, um, even going back more than a year. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, the fans were so into it. Um, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. I, I, we obviously go to all the other ballparks, and there's only a handful of ballparks and places in the country I think that can can uh, hang with Philadelphia. When it comes to something as routine as wearing your favorite team's hat or shirt and wearing your team's colors. And the the fans in Philadelphia wear it all the time. They wear it with pride. They wear it to the games. They don't go to games to, quote, look good. They wear their, their team jersey and they wear their team colors. And um, you just know that it matters to them. And there's very few places in the country that we travel to um, that can be on par with that, I, I think. And um, the other thing I, I just never will forget about the parade is just is kind of what we talked about before, but the, the adoration the fans had for Harry. Yeah. Um, you know, as we sit here, 2400 Market Street recording this, it was just a few blocks down. We were stuck on Market Street before the parade really even got started we mm-hmm. came and i think we were on 21st and we turned left and and we're kind of staged up on market street and there were obviously thousands and thousands of people everywhere and we were stuck for a while and the fans on our float was uh the broadcasters the ball girls a few uh philadelphia city officials and uh the fanatic that's who was on our float and harry and the fanatic were clearly the main attractions without without uh, compare and just the way the fans showered him with affection. I actually had an old camera that 
I doesn't work anymore, but I've had some video of it. Um, this is before you had great cell phone right. video, you know, smartphones and whatnot. And, um, and just the way the fans reacted to Harry. And Harry's reaction back was e- even after all those years, uh, after all that love that had been handed out, he was still just floored by it. You could s- just see it in his face. He was almost brought to tears by it. Um, you could hear him. I was so close to him with the camera. He's talking almost under his breath. Just wow, wow, wow. You know, um, it meant a lot to him, and it meant a lot to share that moment with with him, to see that moment um, up close with him. So then, the next year, we lose Harry. Yeah. As much as you feel comfortable, how difficult was that day? Uh, it was. It was really tough. Um, you know. It was 15 minutes before that that we were in the clubhouse together standing, writing the lineups down off the board. And he and I were standing next to each other, and we were scheduled to go to the White House the next day. And uh, I remember Harry was going to go talk to Ryan Howard about something. And uh, and I said, all right, I'll see you upstairs. And uh, I don't remember what I did next. I think I went out to the field for a short time and then uh, decided to go back and put my stuff down upstairs. And um, I was waiting in the elevator lobby on the, on the lower level of, what, of Nationals Park. And um, there, was some, there was a guy next to me who worked for the club. And there was some squawk on the radio. And, uh, and he said, uh-oh. And I said, what? And he goes, that was a call for the EMTs on the seventh floor. And my heart just sank. I knew. I knew it was Harry. Um, I knew it had to be. And um, it was excruciating waiting on the elevator to get up there and, and see what was going on. And, to, uh, of course, and then when you get up there, you realize, you know, your worst fears are confirmed. And, and, um, and uh, then it was just kind of this wait and you knew it wasn't good, and we knew it wasn't good, and um, the EMTs took him away. And um, I, I loved Harry dearly, um, and we all did. Um, but for me, I remember uh, David Montgomery having to address the team. And, uh, you know, David lost a really, really good friend yeah. that day, and he had to – kind of power through and be our leader and um and deal with all that and not only that but i think um you know harry's one of those one of those broadcasters that transcends the the booth in that like he's a part of the team Mm -hmm. and you know the guys on the field you know um and you know it was it, it was it was tough it was just uh you know that quiet moment in the clubhouse when Harry or when David announced that Harry had passed and told the team that, and um, yeah, it was it was really difficult. And then going on the air, it, it became you know I remember after that meeting, uh, I, I went back, I called my wife and uh, talked to her for a little bit, and then just tried to spend the next thirty minutes or so just organizing some feelings and some thoughts, um, so I could somehow managed to get on the air so it was tough and you know seeing larry sarge you know those 
you know, wheels, those guys who'd spent so many years and so many hours with him. Um, it was a hard day. Yeah, because it's all, I would imagine, like, the first time you see a a father or a fatherly figure in your life cry, and you kind of realize. Yeah. You, it, you know, we yeah. know where I'm going with that. Like, yeah. and you see reactions from people that are com- completely foreign to what you're used to seeing sure. out of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not used to seeing Larry brought to tears. Yeah. Um, and uh, at least not when he's not giggling because he belts <laughs> on the right. air. Uh, so, yeah, it was different. And for me, you know, he was so um, – I didn't grow up with a close, like, grandfather, say. And uh, I didn't have that experience. And I, I always kind of relate to Harry as being very grandfatherly when we got when, – when I got to town, he was not the hard-drinking, carousing – party and you know harry callis he was um he was just this gentle sweet loving man that um you know always seemed to have your best interest at heart so and you talk about how the fans react when did was there a moment or a time when you first felt like the phillies fan base had taken you in and that you had really connected with them i don't know that there was um any one uh, moment or or time or whatever that I felt that I mean I felt uh, like um, I felt welcomed pretty early on. Um, my first week on the job, I got a phone. I got a voicemail from Mark Zumoff. I didn't know Mark. I, didn't, I had never met him, and in fact, it would be a while before I did. But he left me a voicemail and said, welcome to town. He said, you'll find that Philadelphia is the biggest small town you're ever going to live in. Um, so I felt like I, I saw that right away. Like you meet people and they know people and they know people and everybody seemed to like kind of know each other, mm-hmm. which is pretty remarkable for a city this big. But you just kept finding those connections. So I know, you know, so-and-so that worked there and, you know, whatever. Um and so you get that feeling that there's a little hometown feeling for you. And you instantly – I mean people were just really nice. Like, um, you know, uh, one of my only experiences coming to Philadelphia before I got here for the job was I was working for KRLD, the uh, radio station in Dallas, Fort Worth. And uh, they needed somebody to go uh, – on the charter to Philadelphia to cover the Cowboys and Eagles. And um, I, I remember, you know, so I don't know what it's like now, but I know back then, like the media that traveled, sort of the team handled their arrangements, mm-hmm. got them to the park and it got them to the stadium or whatever. And I remember we're on the, I'm on the late bus and it's mostly just media. Most, you know, all the team had already been at the stadium and we're driving up and the, <laughs> The fans that are lined up along Broad and Patterson or whatever up along the fence uh, in the parking lots and stuff and the greetings they're giving the bus, right? And we're like, we're just media, right? But they are they are ready to get to this game, right? Um, so that was my only experience. I'm like, wow, they're, they're fired up. Um, but I found I, – I have found the town to be warm, welcoming, um, uh, and again – uh, has enough of a small town feel that is, you know, it's never been overwhelming, and it's never felt like um, sort of you're doing this 
on an island by yourself and uh, like you feel like you make real connections to people and and um, and it's it's been great. I, I love it here. Final question: Do you have a favorite call of your own? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think from a uh, I get asked about different calls uh, at times, and I always say that. Um, I, and I've gotten to call some really cool things, uh, uh, but I feel like there's always something that I could go back and be like, I don't really like yep. the way I did that. There's always that. Um, and for the most part, I've learned as I've grown to just be like, you know what? That's what I did. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. I can't do anything about it right. now, uh, so I'm not going to fret about it too much because uh, – but who needs that? Um, now, I will listen back and be like, eh, maybe next time I'll try to do something here a little bit differently mm-hmm. or whatever. But I think from a purely like a mechanical play-by-play standpoint, uh, there was a game in 09 that, uh, in New York and the, the game ended with an unassisted triple play. Right. Eric Bruntlett, right? Right. And I was so – happy after the fact because it happens so quickly you don't you're just like blown away that the game even just ended Mm -hmm. um but i was so happy after the fact that i got that i actually had announced all three outs in the correct order like for me that was right like i didn't because i had (laughs) i think in 06 there was a triple play it was around the horn of five four three and i butchered it like I kill – it was awful. Like I'm sure if anybody was listening, they would have been like, oh, we have no idea what just happened. It throws it – right. it's a triple play. <laughs> right? Well, this one I actually had the outs in the correct order. And um, so I was, I was happy about that. <laughs> I could say that, that I got them right. Scott Fransky, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that will do it for this week's show. One-on-one is an original sports podcast from KYW News Radio. If you like this show and want to help us out, make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode. And you can help more people find out about the podcast by finding the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter, at one-on-one pod. You can follow me on Twitter, at MattLeon1060. Want to thank Scott Fransky, the Phillies play-by-play radio voice, for joining us this week. My name is Matt Leon. Come back next week for another good conversation with someone you should know more about.